Hello, captives and captive friends, and welcome to the third season of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me. Once again, sorry, you're still stuck with me, Richard Kutcher. It has certainly been nice having a couple of months off from recording and, of course, giving our loyal listeners uh, both a break, but also the opportunity to catch up on any uh, episodes that you may have missed from last year. Uh, but I'm delighted to be back in the studio or my, my homemade uh, studio slash dining room. And we have some really exciting uh, new content lined up for 2021. And maybe, just maybe, in the second half of this year, we'll be able to return to some in-person recording as well. The the virtual recording has been going brilliantly. It's fantastic to have the cooperation of all our great guests to do this virtually, but really keen to get back to in-person conferences and, uh, and, and recording some of these things face-to-face. But the other exciting development since the end of GCP 2020 is we have also launched a new quarterly magazine. If you haven't already seen it, it is GCP insight it is free to read online and download so please do check it out at globalcaptivepodcast.com forward slash gcp insights and there is a link in the episode description and our next edition packed with lots of exclusive and original informed analysis will be released in april and last of the housekeeping items before i bring in our first guest as ever if you are new to the podcast you can listen in a, in a multiple uh, ways you can uh, subscribe to us on any podcast app of your choice such as apple podcasts uh, soundcloud spotify uh, i think uh, castbox tends to be the, the, the app of choice on android uh, just search for global captive podcast and you can also listen to us on your desktop on the globalcaptivepodcast.com website but finally on with gcp 46 and i am very pleased to welcome a man i'm i'm quite surprised actually he hasn't already been a, a guest co-host he must have missed the memo previously um that is pete krantz captive practice leader at beecher carlson pete you've been on the pod a couple of times before but never had the honor of being a guest co-host so uh to welcome and, and congratulations yeah, Richard, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little uh, nervous at this, the responsibility <laughs> of this, uh, of, of this role. So, um, but looking forward to it, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of interesting stuff going on. So yeah, it's great, great to have you uh, to have you back on. And we've got some really other great guests, which I'll just talk uh, through briefly. Uh, shortly, you'll be hearing from Carl Lehman, uh, Chief Risk Officer of Belgian Multinational Logistics Operator Katu Nati. For those who have been with us since the very beginning of the pod, you may remember Carl was actually our first ever captive owner guest in our first episode released in March 2019, so exactly two years ago. He always has strong opinions, and I recall him in that episode being particularly critical of Solvency 2 and BEPS in particular. So it'll be interesting to hear how his views on those uh, have changed or or stayed the same because there have been developments on both of those since then. And in the second half of the episode, we will also be joined by Stephen Beagley, a Seattle-based corporate and regulatory insurance attorney who is going to help us make sense of all the developments and new controversial legislation coming out of Washington State. And, and Pete and I will also be picking up on that in the, in the second half as well. So so Pete, we're, we're familiar now, I think, with the two main themes of, of 2020 related to captives and businesses that own captives. And they are, of course, the pandemic, hopefully a word we're not saying as much by the end of the year, and, uh, and the hard insurance market, which I think we're, we think is here to stay for a bit longer. Bearing these two items in mind, Pete, what were some of the key priorities for 
your existing captive clients, those who already had a captive uh, over the past 12 months? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question, Richard. Um, and it, it actually kind of starts back to 2019 because we had the hardening market before we had the pandemic. The pandemic then exacerbated the issues primarily with its impact on the stock market. And it was a short-term impact and that has primarily recovered. And then, but the, the hardening market has stayed and continued. Um, so what, what we were already seeing activity, and I think this is across the industry, in 2019 of, of increased interest in captives in response to the, the, the premium increases. That continued to get worse into uh, 2020, then the pandemic hit. We actually saw uh, a little bit of a lull in activity sort of as that pandemic first hit because a lot of organizations were turning internally and saying, what should we be doing? Where is our insurance coverages? Where are dollars? So they were starting to think financially about what the implications to the overall organization would be. And so we started seeing questions on captives about, can we do distributions? Can we do loans? And those sorts of things. So it had kind of quieted down. We then saw a bit of a tick up in activity or questions around, can we insure non-physical damage BI, business interruption, which is essentially what the pandemic was. Can we insure that within our captive? And, and there was actually very limited opportunities in that because uh, you can already deduct it for business purposes and, and it, it, it all is, is, is happening right around the real time. So moving the risk to the captive and then paying it back out in, in the short term uh, didn't really have any sort of financial or non-financial benefit to it. And then we kind of moved back into the hardening insurance market. In terms of um, the existing captives you have, Pete, have you, as you said, obviously there was a bit of a lull um, as people, companies just got their heads around what the pandemic was and what it meant for them as a business, you know, what immediate short-term support they needed. As the hard market has really set in though, are those, and we were lucky to have quite a few of your captive clients on the pod actually during, during 2020 uh, talking about this, but have you continued to see those existing captives just become more valuable to their parents and, 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 and receive more premium and take on more risk as insurance buyers grapple with, with the hardening market? Yeah. So, so for existing captives, in particular, ones that were kind of already starting to mature Sure, we're seeing a, a, a transition in really how they're financing their risks. And I know we've talked about this, uh, we talked about it in 2020, is sort of the future of risk financing uh, in five to 10 years is going to be very different than it is today. So a, a lot of the clients that we work with, because we try to be proactive and work with them on an ongoing basis, are already starting that shift into how they finance risk. Um, so you see that more from the mature captives. Uh, the, the younger captives, we saw increased utilization. We're seeing activity, though, across, as I mentioned previously, every industry, every line of business. You typically think about the, the real estate world and you know the property coverage, and you say, is that a good play or is that a good uh, opportunity for a captive? It didn't really used to be because the tail on property coverage uh, is so short that there wouldn't be much benefit to accelerating your loss reserves into your financial statements. However, again, in certain types of real, the real estate world where there's, there might be a lot of debt uh, financing to acquire properties, you have contractual requirements that say you can't have a deductible greater than a certain amount, say 25 or 50,000, and you need to have AM best A-rated paper on the carrier that provides coverage above that. Well, these organizations are seeing their premium spiking up. So now they're looking at you know, their primary $5 million or primary $10 million layer 
I've had these situations where uh, you know that layer was costing five or ten million dollars to these real estate companies. Uh, I'm going to give a hypothetical example, but it actually crosses several several clients that I worked with in 2020, where their losses in that primary ten million dollar layer might have been two million dollars. Uh, that may have been the the largest losses they had over a ten year span, but the premium charge is five to to six million. So you have to look and say, okay, we need to have a fronting carrier, right? So what we'll do is we'll pay the fronting carrier a piece. Let's call that one point five or two million dollars, and we then look and say, will the carrier provide coverage for the second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on events? And we'll take the first event. So if we can take $5 million of the premium or $4 million of the premium, take that primary $10 million for the first hit, the numbers play out in particular when we've never had a hit greater than $2 million. Yeah. That's where in, in you know, different areas of the market, so in the real estate world where typically it hasn't been a big opportunity, we're seeing a lot of activity, but it's across industries. Yeah, no, really interesting. And before we come on to uh, kind of pipeline and what what might be coming down the road as 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 new formations increase, I'll just just make a note to listeners. Pete, you know, reference some of the conversations we had regarding the future of of risk financing and, and defining risk appetite that we had with Peter Carlson uh, in GCP twenty twenty. If you do go to the the globalcaptivepodcast dot com website and the Beecher Carlson page within our friends of the podcast, you'll see all those episodes that uh, Pete and his colleagues featured in last year so definitely do check those out if, if you had missed them along the way okay so in terms of that that's great regarding existing captives obviously the, the big uh, theme at the moment uh this time of year is we get all the new statistics from the various domiciles around the world they're not all out there yet but the the, the ones that really stand out in terms of new formations at the moment are vermont north carolina and cayman in the kind of north american region uh really good numbers coming out there around 30 odd for all of them i think north carolina was more than 40 Across your offices, Pete, and, and, and the sectors that you, you work with, you've already mentioned real estate there. Are there any particular sectors or types of companies that you're, you're, you're hearing most interest from regarding formation of, of new captives this year? So because uh, Beecher Carlson is part of the Brown and Brown family of companies and Brown and Brown touches every industry, I see opportunities uh, across the board. Uh, and um, I'd have to go back and look at our specific numbers, but there wasn't really a specific, a, a certain trend uh, by industry where we saw activity. Um, you know, I, I will say from some of our industry verticals as Beecher Carlson in the large account space, real estate has definitely seen an uptick from what we typically would have seen for the reasons that I mentioned. Uh, healthcare uh, is continuing to get more activity, believe it or not. You, you know, the, it's been healthcare uh, in particular in, the, in the, the hospital system has been something that uh, has, has been a predominant part of the industry for a very long time, um, it's actually seeing a bit of a spike up for smaller organizations. So I think that's the real delineator here is that it's still across all industries. It's not a particular industry that's that's uh, seeing increased activity, but it's more expanding further into the middle market on a pure captive basis. Definitely seeing a lot of increase for group captives as well. Yeah. So let's hear from our captive owner interview of the episode as mentioned at the top carl lehman chief risk officer of kato and nati featured in our first ever episode back in march 2019 so it's great to welcome him back onto the pod 
Carl oversees the group's Luxembourg captive, and we discussed his experience of the hard market to date and the growing interest from the large European nations in facilitating captive regulation. But we started with his views on IOPA's latest comments on Solvency 2 and the principle of proportionality towards captives at the end of 2020. So, Carl, welcome back onto the Global Captive Podcast. A real pleasure to, to have you with us uh, a second time after being our first ever captive owner interview uh, in 2019. One of the topics which aray, uh, arose at the end of 2020 was these comments from IOPA regarding Solvency 2 and, and specifically some comments regarding uh, captives and, and possibly the introduction of, of more proportionality. Now, we did discuss this briefly with Fabrice Ferreira Aon, who I know you know well at the end of last year, but be really interested to hear from you, Carl, the captive owner perspective of, of those comments. I understand that the captive that you oversee would possibly benefit from, from those changes if they were made. So what's your initial response to those comments from IOPA? Yeah, well, a couple of things. Eh? I mean, indeed, uh, there is a lot of talk about it, but uh, the result still has to be seen. And, and uh, I mean, amongst others, Firma has, has fought long uh, for captives to be uh, treated less onerously and, and, and uh, for that proportionality principle that was originally uh, foreseen. But, but I mean, so far, it has not been put in place. So uh, we hope that finally there, there will be more proportionality Proportionality, as it is the case now. That's one thing. You also see that that apparently uh, there is a lot of uh, pressure within the European Union to overhaul the whole Solvency 2. While, uh, I mean, for most of the people, they, they just say, well, let, let's just fix the things that are not uh, well or that are not clear or not working correctly instead of overhauling the whole framework. Uh, and the last part is, and that is maybe even as important as a proportionality issue, is that uh, certainly for the future that today, but that's not that I'm not only speaking for captives, but Solvency 2 in general, Solvency 2 in general has become a real barrier in, in the whole uh, green transformation and, and uh, sustainability that is imposed on companies because due to the the solvency 2 obligations that banks and other companies have it's it's sometimes getting very difficult to impossible to invest in in, in, in that green transformation and in startups uh, working in this area uh, as banks cannot uh, loan them uh, enough money in order to to comply with solvency so th th that's a um, that's a big thing, a real big thing, I think, where Solvency 2, and that has not been talked about so much in the past, but it's coming now with the uh, whole sustainability discussion more and more to the surface that it's a, a really burden uh, for uh, the whole system to to get uh, into that green transformation. Yeah, that's really interesting, Carl. And that's actually a topic, the ESG topic is a topic we do actually want to explore at quite a bit more depth later this year on the Global Captive podcast in related to captives and how they might yep. or might not fit into corporate's um, ESG agendas but let's let's keep it let's keep discussing top two later in the year because obviously this this story is going to develop further carl 
regarding another another major story that's come out of uh, Europe over the past few months, uh, just before Christmas, again we heard from Amre in France that they are they are working with uh, governments and legislators on introducing a, a more friendly captive environment for French companies to have their captives at home. And I spoke to Alessandro De Felici uh, from Anra in Italy um, a month or so back for Captive.com about Italy wanting to do something similar, although they don't think they need legislation to do that there. I'm interested to hear what your, your thoughts are broadly on this idea of, of the larger European nations potentially welcoming captives and then specifically to Belgium, where you're based, if, if that has ever arisen in, that, in your community as well. Uh, well, a number of things to say here. Uh, well, the good news is the more captives and the more locations, the better, I would say. Uh, now, having said that, uh, politicians uh, saying something uh, and, and regulations be in place, that's something that are two different things. So, yes, it's correct. There has been a lot of work done, certainly in France. I'm aware of that. I think they work on two tracks, actually, to make it for the medium-sized company uh, possible to establish a captive. And then for the smaller entities or the smaller companies, they they work on on a kind of a track to on a possibility to to have uh, reserves in your company for certain purposes that would not be taxed or not be as highly taxed as they are today. In Belgium, we have had uh, a similar discussion, I would say, around 10, 15 years ago on the possibility to have reserves as a company that would not be imposed but that that project was was not accepted by the authorities but then I'm talking 15 years ago so but today I'm not really aware of any plans in Belgium on establishing captives and I I mean, you have to, it's easy, well, it's easy, put the regulation into place is one thing, but then you also still have to have the people running the captives, the, the knowledge, uh, the infrastructure. So that's also something that, that you don't get from, from one day to another. So I think all of the countries you mentioned, Italy, Belgium, and France, that, that France is, is the furthest uh, in the project, but still people, uh, although it, it's getting quite concrete, I think people are thinking about one, one or two years years because before it will effectively be in place. So uh, that's a good evolution. But again, uh, we have to be cautious to see the final texts and, and what would be the consequences and what will be possible and not. Obviously, you mentioned, Carl, that the more captive locations, the better in, in your view. Do you think, obviously, though, that there are benefits from having captive specialist centers such as Luxembourg or Dublin as, as, and Malta, as we mentioned, because, you know, if we think about from the captive manager perspective, obviously economies of scale helps them in, in their business model. And uh, I'd imagine that if you were going to have a couple of captives in France, a couple of captives in Italy, and you wanted to use an outsourced captive manager, then it probably would be more expensive to do it at home. But that's just that's kind of speculation at this point. Do you think that if we did move to more national captive centers for each each country in Europe, um, and that's an extreme view at the moment, do you think there would be a, a strong t- trend towards home domicile? And do, do you see any dangers in that for the, the captive model? Or will it just be a, a case-by-case basis? Ooh, that's a, a difficult one. Now, I mean, for the captive model, again, it, it, it will depend on, on, on how that regulation is put in place in the specific country. 
It will also depend on the type of company you are. Publicly traded companies sometimes are, are more sensitive on, on certain domiciles. But I, I don't think it's realistic to say that, that, that every country will establish rules and regulation for, uh, for captives. I could be wrong, but uh, I don't think because, as I said, you also have the, the economies of scale. Eh? You have to have enough captives to have the infrastructure and, and the companies running those captives. So I don't see that happen uh, very quickly uh, in every country in, in Europe. Okay, well, let's look uh, look at more uh, kind of practical measures with regards to actual actual captives. Obviously, a big topic of the last two years, aside from the pandemic, has been the hardening market. I'm interested, Carl, how you've got a mature captive in, in Luxembourg. How has your captive supported you, if at all, through through this hardening market? Has it been a useful tool to, to be utilised? Well, so far, uh, we were one of the few ones to have pandemics in our uh, in our captive coverage. So oh, that's, that's wow. a good news. But still, we have to see, and that, that will only be seen. I mean, today, the the, uh, the, pandem- the pandemic is not over. So we, we're not sure yet about any BI that we could have had. Uh, so uh, yes, we, we, we are happy to have it. We are happy to have the pandemic coverage in the captive. But for the rest, we haven't used it very specifically in this hardening market. A couple of reasons for that. Uh, our captive also is, is not so old. I think in the captive world, it's even very young. It's only five years okay. ago that it was established. So we are still growing it. And that's also to the future. We, we will only be able to expand some of the coverages that we have once that the, the captive has uh, grown up enough and has enough capacity and reserves to bear some of the risks we, we want to put in the captive. Like like uh, for us, storm is an important one as we have a lot of locations in the in uh, the Houston area. So uh, there, uh, a storm coverage uh, is one of the things we're to- thinking about in the future. But then you, you, you need uh, a lot of capacity. So Therefore, the captive has to be strong enough and has enough reserves to be able to uh, to cope with that. Well, that's uh, it's really interesting to hear that that story, Carl, and that perspective because we talk so often about captives being a long term play, not just a short term fix. And 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 we talked a lot last year about how useful captives are in hard markets, but it's also you need to have uh, the surplus and the collateral to be able to to fund new lines. It's not just a magic switch you can you can uh, you can flick on. But generally speaking, you see in the market that that I mean the the way people look at captives is is now completely. I, I think we can now say has completely changed. And 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 the tax story that was initially 20, 30 years ago one of the main drivers, and then slightly became the undercover driver has now as has now not a driver at all anymore, and and people are really. Uh, looking at captives and using captives as a risk management tool. And I think that, that that's the very good news. And and maybe the COVID may o- only have, and the hardening market will, will only have uh, energized and, and speeded up that uh, transition. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, novations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. 
welcome back to part two of the Global Captive podcast. Pete Krantz will be joining us again shortly. But before we hear his views on the legislative developments in Washington state, I had a very useful and informative chat with Stephen Beagley, a Seattle-based corporate insurance attorney who provided us with some excellent local insights into how this dispute has developed over the past three years between Insurance Commissioner Mike Creedler and a local captive community and explained some of Commissioner Creedler's rationale behind his decisions and activity. Not that I agree absolutely with the regulator's position here, but but essentially they they took a look at captives operating here and looked at them both from a premium tax perspective and also an insurance compliance perspective and thought that there was some activity in Washington state which ran afoul of the insurance law. And what I, what I mean by that is is the very second statute in our insurance code gives the insurance commissioner the jurisdiction to regulate essentially insurable interests affecting the state of Washington. So if he sees any any transaction that involves an insured here in Washington state, he looks at that very second statute and says, you know, is this insurance af- affecting the state of Washington? You know, not not that I necessarily agree with this, but this is how he claims jurisdiction. Interesting. And of course, going back to, um, I think it was 2018, which is the first um, high profile dispute uh, relating to uh, to this kind of, I don't think misunderstanding is the right word, but kind of action. Uh, Mike, it was against Microsoft's captive in Arizona, Cypress Insurance Company. Microsoft and Cypress did ultimately settle with the insurance commissioner for uh, $573,000 in unpaid premium plus uh, $302,000 in interest and penalties. So one of the and one of the things that came out of this report that was commissioned to Milliman by the insurance commissioner last year and was published um, just at the start of this year was there was actually seemed to be a, a huge drop off in the amount of premium written by captives owned by Washington State companies in the state of Washington in 2018. The premium written by captives, according to the survey done by Milliman, Milliman was $550 million, and that fell uh, in 2019 to 156 million dollars we ha- we haven't got the 2020 figures yet what explanations could there be for that that drop off is it companies scared about this coming 2% tax and the action taken or could there be other reasons to explain it great question my guess is that some of these large large insureds here in Washington state if they're still using their captive, are, are electing to place it through a surplus lines broker, a licensed surplus lines broker in Washington and pay the tax. And, and what I mean by that is in 2010, the Non-Admitted Reinsurance Reform Act as part of the Dodd-Frank Act indicated that if you had an insurance company with at least $15 million of capital and surplus, it could be essentially used as a surplus lines insurer. So in the instance of perhaps some of these large captives owned by large insurers in Washington state that you noted in the report, perhaps the drop-off is they've elected to place this through a licensed surplus lines broker into their captive and paid the premium tax there. Uh, Just a guess, but that's my hunch. Where we are now is we have this piece of legislation uh, proposed this year, which is Senate Bill 5315, now making its way through the state legislature. And if passed, it will formalize a 2% premium tax on 
Washington risks, as well as require registration by captives with the OIC and a, a very small uh, red, uh, registration fee as well. Do you think this legislation, and I know it's you know, currently passing through and we're recording this about a week before release, so there might have been some small changes to it since then, but in its current state, do you think this legislation will clarify the position for, for everyone concerned? The bill itself is a compromise, and I, I think that and you've probably noted this, there's a tax apportionment, you know, where where the an insured that's self-reporting and gets essentially credentialed in Washington state will pay the 2% tax just on its Washington risks and not its risks it can apportion to the other states it does business in. And, and that goes back to, like we were just talking about, the non-admitted Reinsurance Reform Act of 2010, yeah. which essentially said the home state gets to keep 100% of the surplus lines premium taxes unless the state has opted to join a tax sharing compact and there's two of those but Washington did not join either Slimpact nor nor NEMA so in their in their mind if this is you know a property casualty risk with a surplus lines insurer a captive that's not licensed in Washington their argument not that we agree or not with this, but is that they get to keep 100% of the taxes. So this this bill, if if it gets you know brought to a, a vote and becomes law, will allow a captive that perhaps has operations in many states to just pay the two percent tax for its risks in Washington. Now the middle market or perhaps a, a captive whose owners only operate in Washington State won't get any benefit from that apportionment. Um, yeah. However, a large insured. You know, with with retail operations or offices or manufacturing in many states, theoretically would. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, what what impact do you expect? I was going to, this is going to be my next question, in fact, regarding kind of middle market captives, because we've touched on uh, the Microsoft case, obviously the other large organizations which have been in disputes with the Office of Insurance Commissioner is uh, likes of Starbucks and Costco, uh, Alaska Air as well being mentioned. And they're, they're captives of a certain size where they may be able to stomach this this tax or, or find other arrangements. But the middle market captives... As you say, those organizations or captive owners who may only have risk in the state, for example, a healthcare system or a public institution, an educational institution, for example, what impact do you think this might have on on those kinds of companies? Could it be that captives become not as efficient to ensure risk that way? I suspect that there'll be a lot of focus on looking at the domicile regulator to see if there's any um, any benefit to perhaps an, an offset for taxes paid locally in Washington based on what their captive has to pay in its in its domicile. Um, I, I per, Perhaps if you're a small or middle market, so to speak, captive that only has Washington state risk and can't apportion out its risk, per, perhaps that's one of the things that, that'll be a, a consideration is looking at is, well, what's the tax benefit? I, I know a number of jurisdictions have sort of graduated taxing on their captives, you know, for the mm. first tranche of, of premium, it's one rate and then it, it goes down. So I suspect that, yes, it'll be tough on the ones that only have Washington risks. And I also suspect that there'll be a renewed focus on what are the costs in each domicile going forward for those if they do need to pay the Washington state tax in addition to whatever the domicile wants to charge also. Now, just just lastly, uh, Steve, you know, there's been quite a lot of criticism um, of this piece of legislation and the approach by Commissioner Creedler over the last couple of years from the wider captive insurance market. I'll mention Gary Osborne because I have quoted him in a few articles for Capt.com over the last uh, few months, and also going back a little bit further, you know, 
Mr. Osborne has said that this this approach is unconstitutional. He believes that this is an example of one state trying to regulate another state's business because the you know the, the transaction is happening in a different state when it's a Vermont captive or Arizona captive or, or whatever. What, what do you think of that? And also, you touched on this right at the top of the of the discussion, Steve. But you know, why does the commissioner believe he has? authority over these risks and these policies which would allow him to not just tax the premium but also to you know uh, require captives to register within the state pay a registration fee provide methodology because that's that kind of sounds like double regulation at, at that point you know whether whether the commissioner is right or wrong he relies upon both the the state law that I mentioned, insurable interests, and also this federal law, the Non-Admitted Reinsurance Reform Act of 2010, which is part of Dodd-Frank, which looks at the home state. And so in, in this instance, the regulator here seems to rely upon these two bases to, to try to claim that any entity that's homestated in Washington owes all of its surplus lines premium taxes to Washington state. Now, whether he's right or wrong, we don't have an answer to that because this has never been challenged in Washington State up to an appellate level for a determination to see if it is constitutional or unconstitutional. However, we do know that this bill is a product of compromise to try to essentially calm some of the regulatory uncertainty here in Washington State and try to create some predictability as to what's the ramifications going forward and how how a Washington state insured, a large corporation like the ones you mentioned, can essentially use their captive in a state where we don't have a self-procurement or direct procurement law. Yeah, fascinating. It's really interesting. You mentioned that obviously it hasn't been challenged up to the appellate level because obviously, as we mentioned before, Microsoft did come to a settlement uh, with the insurance commissioner and there have been other high profile disputes and some other settlements as well. So you'd expect if anyone was going to challenge it, it would be one of those much, much larger corporates that have captives that have the kind of the, the balance sheet and the heft to actually take it on. But it seems like that's not going to happen. And I imagine Steve uh, looking a bit broad if this kind of thing had been challenged by either one or a community of captive owners and it went up to a certain level of the courts, it may have had ramifications for more states and more approaches than just Washington. Oh, you're absolutely right. You know, if it if it was challenged, perhaps like you mentioned at the federal level as a constitutional question, Washington's part of the Ninth Circuit, which is you know, geographically the largest federal circuit. So that would have ramifications for other states, including California. And, and then if it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, of course, that would be precedential nationwide. But you're right. And, and unfortunately, we don't have the answers to your good question. But it would be it would be great to know. And, you know, unfortunately for me, I don't see anyone currently willing to to fight that fight, especially as this legislation is working its way through in Olympia, Washington. So thank you to Steve for joining us. And I think that was a very useful explainer and analysis of what has been happening uh, in Washington State over the past two to three years now, going back to 2018, uh, when that Microsoft dispute uh, occurred, as we discussed. Pete, it appears the Washington State self-procurement tax uh, back and forth will be resolved in the coming months with a, with a 2% premium tax on Washington-based risks being formalized by the uh, state legislature. 
easy for me to say. Um, how close are you and clients uh, watching this development, Pete? Do you do you expect it to have a, a material impact on captive programs or or potential new formations, which predominantly are writing uh, risk in the state and are owned by a Washington State business? Yeah, industry wide, I don't see Washington State in particular having a, a material impact on captive programs from a business perspective. Yes, Washington has you know a, a good amount of business, in particular in the tech world and, and things like that. But is it going to be a big number that two percent premium tax on the risk? It's going to be a big enough number to to move the needle for a lot of other clients. I, I don't anticipate it because if you structured your program correctly, I, I just don't think it's going to amount to a material number. As as we discussed with Steve in the interview, I, I feel like companies such as Microsoft and Amazon and Costco, who have been in the news about this, who who, who are the largest businesses or corporates in in Washington State, and of course own captives in in various domiciles, you feel like they can stomach that number or structure their programs a certain way, so that number isn't as big as it may be. What I'm concerned about a little bit is the local healthcare system, which owns a captive or, or a, a more middle market company that owns a captive and, and by nature of being a smaller company, maybe the vast majority of their risk is very much Washington to risk. And that, that 2% then becomes can become quite a significant number, I imagine. I, I would certainly agree with that. Um, the question is going to be how many of those exist. And then the next question, subsequent question is how many of them are direct writing business and yeah. how much is reinsurance transaction? Um, so you know, kind of considering all of that as an industry for the industry as a whole, I don't know that again the one state issue will have that big of an impact. Well, yeah, I guess I guess you know, taking a wider look at it, then Pete, we, we've we have seen, and I haven't actually dug too deep into this yet, and it's on my on my on my to do list. We have we have seen Minnesota asking similar questions of captives recently regarding self procurement tax and. Johnson & Johnson won a self-procurement tax case against its home state of New Jersey last year. Now, all of these, what makes this quite complicated is all of these disputes or or actions by states are all quite different in nature, right? The, the problem here is that no, the states aren't consistent on how they on how they deal with this issue. Is the self-procurement tax issue one you expect to continue raising its head during uh, this year across various states? And, and bearing that in mind, how big a consideration is it for your prospective captive owners when you are discussing uh, potential new formations? Typically, when we're evaluating, we're doing a feasibility study, we're evaluating uh, captive opportunity, we're considering the direct placement tax risk or, or cost uh, as part of that financial analysis. So we've built that in. Um, so if you end up with, with potentially, if you're building in a 5% rate or a 4% rate, you end up with a 2% rate just on risks in the state, it actually ends up being a bit more favorable, to be mm. honest. But I think what's really going to happen here, and I, um, I had, had written a piece on this uh, in 2020, is you're going to see sort of a, a break apart of the, those states and the approach that they take. So going back to Washington State, you know, you've got Microsoft and Amazon, you've got Costco, big companies that are, that are there. And what did we see when Washington State first raised this issue or became uh, quite public um, was we heard about North Carolina potentially introducing legislation that would say if you were if your headquarters was in North Carolina, they didn't care where your captive was, they're not going to chase the tax. So essentially, I think what you're going to have is sort of this break apart of approaches. Those states that are 
chasing premium dollars and trying to supplement their state budgets for whatever reason, along with those that I, I describe more as pro-business or business-friendly that are going to say, hey, we're not going to mess with any of that. Bring your corporate headquarters uh, and put it here in North Carolina or in whatever state, and we're not going to care where your captive is uh, because they're trying to be more pro-business-friendly. So I think you're going to kind of see this break apart. My hope is it doesn't get to that point and things sort of calm down and, and states realize that there are pros and cons to whatever approach you take. But if it does continue to move forward, I think we're going to see those those sort of competing approaches that are uh, one's more a bit more pro-business versus the other one more chasing revenue. Yeah, and this is a, a philosophical and almost a political view. We, we could we could discuss and debate for for many more minutes and possibly hours, Pete. But I think going back to my point about the big boys can deal with this, it's actually the smaller guys which it hurts. I mean, that's the most potentially damning argument for the people involved in, in proposing this this legislation and, and pressing this issue home is actually they might think they're they're being clever and cracking down on, on big business and and raising tax dollars, but actually it's going to be the smaller guys this hurts rather than the bigger guys that can actually absorb it. So anyway, we'll, we'll see how this all develops and uh, we'll certainly one to watch as it, as it trickles into other states during the year. That's all we have time for uh, in this first episode of GCP 2021. So thank you to all of our guests uh, for joining me uh, this week. Carl Lehman of Cattle and Nati, Stephen Beadley of uh, Krieger Beadley PLLC in Seattle. And of course, to you, Pete Krantz of Beecher Carlson. Thank you for coming on to the pod, Pete. Thank you, Richard, very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity and you're doing fantastic work and, and it's uh, incredibly valuable to the industry. So thank you. Thank you very much, Pete. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.